something you should do at least on a quarterly basis is sit down and do, um, you know, a walk along with a sales rep, uh, with a, a marketer, you know, and it's silly, you may be remote, so not necessarily sitting side by side, but actually sit on their calls, um, watch the motion, hear what they're talking about, what conversations they're having with uh, customers and, and really see what their day-to-day -day looks like. I don't think that happens often enough. Welcome to RevOps Rockstars in pursuit of unicorns. I'm David Carnes. And I'm Jaren Chu. Join us as we interview RevOps leaders to explore the challenges they have faced, the biggest lessons they've learned, and what they think makes a RevOps rockstar. This show is brought to you by OpFocus on a mission to help companies run their businesses better by letting you focus on growth while we scale your operations. Let's get this show on the road. Today's guest is our newest RevOps rock star, an expert in both quantitative and qualitative analytics, specializing in translating raw data and actionable insights. She's led marketing and revenue ops teams for over eight years. Most recently was the head of global revenue marketing and operations at Haiku. Samantha Ritchie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be on today. Yeah, we're so happy to have you. You know, we love asking a tough question to start with. And, you know, this this provides such a great learning opportunity for our listeners. Um, Samantha, what's something in RevOps that you had to learn the hard way? <laughs> I think the hardest thing to learn is that while you may have an idea that's brilliant um, in theory, the practical application may not always turn out the way that you expected, and you have to be willing to adjust and be agile and flexible, especially as you're getting user feedback. Um, a lot of times, you know, worked great in testing, worked great in staging, and then when we roll it out into production, um, there's unintended consequences, be that with, you know, the users themselves, other business processes, or other tech that might have been impacted. So again, it, you kind of have to keep things um, not personal. So again, it's it's a reality. I think we've all learned at some point. So you're saying like keep the ego at the door, and and then ego at the door. Yep. Are you, are you seeking out that kind of feedback in a formal way, or are you just receptive to it after the launch, or both? I think you have to do both. Um, it's important. I think you know us as ops professionals, um, that user feedback is critical for us. So you have to be methodical and collect that on a regular basis. You have to watch the data, but you have to have real conversations both with marketers and with the sales team to see you know, practical application, what they're really talking about. Um, you're gonna get different opinions from sales leadership or marketing leadership than you will from you know, the everyday users who are actually using your systems, using your business processes, using the technology that you've implemented. So it's important to hear from everybody um, on what their experiences are so that you can continuously improve as you're going. I'm interested in learning a bit about the RevOps roles that you've been in. Um, you've been in both marketing ops in your past. You've been in uh, the revenue ops side. Most recently, as the head of global revenue marketing and operations at Haiku, what did that entail? 
Yeah, so on, on the ops side, uh, we oversaw both marketing operations and sales operations. So, you know, our, our version of RevOps was that combined function, um, which was really great. It helped us to create a lot of scale and efficiencies that I don't think you see when marketing ops and sales ops are siloed from each other um, and helped us actually to put you know, better business processes in place faster. So that's this kind of evolution and shift away from, you know, having two separate siloed organizations into this new kind of RevOps model. Um, I, I think that's why a lot of businesses are moving towards it. It really allows that um, alignment between two core functions of your business to happen more organically without some of the head-to-head that you typically see between sales and marketing. Not to say that doesn't exist, but having an aligned operations organization, I think really helps to mitigate some of that. I wanna dive a little bit deeper into that because um, a lot of times I think in the marketing community, CMO community, we hear a lot about how um, marketing ops and sales ops need to be separate because it's a longer term uh, view in marketing ops versus a shorter term view in sales ops. As someone with marketing ops background and inhabiting a role where you did oversee both, personally, did you find it challenging or difficult to balance uh, or negotiate the demands of both the short-term um, requirements of ops and then the longer-term more strategic aspects of ops? Again, I, I'm strongly in the camp that I, I think it's the best model to have them together um, because you're able to hear both sides. Again, as you mentioned, both sides have very different needs. Um, marketing is typically looking for more visibility into their programs. Um, they may want more depth in uh, the waterfall so that they can kind of see, you know, different stages than you're, you're going to necessarily want from the sales users. But, you know, then sales leadership is looking for kind of that bottom end of the funnel, the outcomes, um, you know, time to close, all of those things. So hearing both sides is really helpful. And then it's your job really to put that together and prioritize and explain to users on both ends why you're going one way versus another in terms of prioritization of your roadmap. Um, but ultimately, again, I, I think once you see the strength of having the combined RevOps org, um, it really just makes sense. Um, I don't think, you know, you may, a lot of times what I find is you, you may get direction from, you know, one side and they'll come and tell you, well, I need this new field because of what, you know, X, Y, Z. And some, you know, organizations just say, okay, we'll take that order, create the field without asking what outcome, what they were actually trying to achieve. When you have that combined RevOps functions, instead of one team going out and just, you know, creating their own environment and the other team creating, you know, their environment, you're able to kind of have that more strategic conversation around what is it, what is the goal here? What outcome are you looking for? Because most likely there's another way to get there that's going to satisfy both sides. And I think that's one thing when you have it totally separate and siloed that most people don't see. Everyone's moving in the same direction how we get there and how we get there together is what's ultimately going to drive our success. Yeah, I hear you on the alignment, especially. And I think 
what you're calling out is the responsibility as the leader of that function to not let more of the strategic components of operations or the short-term, long-term approach of marketing versus sales ops um, dictate all of right. what you do. Like you're right. you're the traffic cop or you're the tiebreaker and needing to protect time to be able to still focus on right. those longer-term and you're, pieces. You're protecting time not only for your team, but for the business as a whole, you know, it's very easy to go down the rabbit hole, you know, chasing requests. Um, but again, if you're not, if you as a leader are not focused on ultimately what is, what are, what are we trying to accomplish? What is the outcome? Is it a new capability that we're trying to stand up? Is it a level of efficiency that we're trying to create? If you're not pushing back and being the one who's dictating that strategy, everyone ends up just wasting time. And a lot of times when you come into new a new environment, you'll see, you know, you've got, you know, fields across your CRM and your automation platforms that haven't been touched in years. And then, you know, you've got duplicates and it, there's a lot of cleanup that typically has to happen because someone didn't ask the hard questions and someone didn't push back. So the other really key piece is as a, as an ops leader, communicating back to marketing and sales leadership around why you are making those changes. Um, again, the other challenge with operations is sometimes to get to one new capability, there may be three sequential steps we have to take. You know, step one in isolation may not make sense to a sales leader or a marketing leader. It's your role and responsibility to explain to them why we're doing this now and what it's ultimately going to achieve for them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You've also worked in a lot of different sized segments and companies. Um, I suspect RevOps as a function looks very different from segment to segment. Could you give me a few of those like takeaways and highlights of what surprised you? Yeah, so I've actually been at companies of all sizes from small, small startup, you know, hyper growth, uh, mid-sized startup to Fortune 500. Um, you know, obviously when you're in the corporate Fortune 500 space, um, you have a lot more resources typically. Um, you've got, you know, probably your own in-house developers, um, even some that are specific to platforms. You might have your own Salesforce dev team and, you know, a full suite of IT professionals who are, are there to kind of help you through um, working. And then, you know, when you're in the small startup side, you might have one person who's your admin for all of your platforms and they're, you know, responsible for Salesforce, uh, for your, your marketing automation, um, for any of your webinar platforms, your ad tech, all of it. So, um, working within, you know, the, the confines of your own team, um, is, is really key. And, I think most people and traditionally are are more on the smaller side. Um, I think only really in you know the last couple of years in the last decade or so, um, we're starting to see ops teams kind of scale up and grow at a faster pace than they have previously. Um, so most of the time you're working with relatively limited resources and and having to make a case a lot of where you need additional help. So it's important to make sure you kind of have your critical functions covered first. So your, your critical tech, you wanna make sure you have that, that admin and where you start to get into other platforms, 
that's where you start to think of if we need either internal headcount or agency resources to help support. So again, you're you're looking at most of the time limited resources um, and a lack of understanding, I think, across the board a lot of times of what ops does and why we need more people. So having to learn how to make a business case too, again, and, and have that conversation with your leaders um, around what's going on in the organization, what you're doing, you know, what your team is working on. It's, you know, it's important to make sure that in the future when you're doing annual planning, you have a seat at the table to make sure you get what you need for, for the, the new year. And I love how you're talking about thinking about resourcing. We're definitely going to come back to that in a few moments, um, how you build the team, et cetera. Uh, before we move off of the topic around like your experience as a RevOps leader in different sized companies, I'm interested in whether there's specific examples as you reflect back of things that you wish you did sooner in your role when you started. Um, things I wish I did sooner. Um, that one's tough. I, it's, Depending on the company and what stage you are from maturity perspective, um, I, I think there's a, a lot of things. I always start with, you know, kind of month one, diving into the data. You know, I'm never making changes right away when I'm starting with a new team. You have to first understand really what's going on. What does your existing environment look like? What do your SKUs look like? What, what is your go-to-market motion? Um, you can't just dive in and start making changes. So I guess, you know, to, to answer that, what do I wish I did sooner? Sometimes I wish I waited a little more <laughs> before starting to implement, you know, big changes. You know, again, you really want to understand, especially on the op side, what's going on, why things were done a certain way before you start trying to reinvent the wheel. I suspect that data collection also isn't limited to looking into the system, but also spending time with actual users, actual uh, folks that would be impacted by those systems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one thing people should always do, um, and not not a one and done type of deal, but something you should do at least on a quarterly basis is sit down and do um, you know a walk along with a sales rep, uh, with a, a marketer. Follow, you know, and it's silly, you may be remote, so not necessarily sitting side by side, but actually sit on their calls, um, watch the motion, hear what they're talking about, what conversations they're having with uh, customers, and, and really see what their day-to-day -day looks like. I don't think that happens often enough. Um, and a lot of times, you know, when you're dealing with, um, you know, your, your clients, you know, on the upside, your clients are sales and marketing, realistically. Um, they may not necessarily have the vocabulary to know what it is that they really need. They know that they have a problem or there's a point of frustration in, you know, whatever they're doing throughout the day. You might see things, you know, in that, you know, shadowing experience that you might not have otherwise heard about. So doing that on a regular basis, I think is really critical beyond just having, you know, the, the conversations where you're actively seeking feedback. Right. And I think the um, underlying principle you're also maybe uh, referencing is um, trust but validate, right? Your leaders, right. your other functional um, heads might tell you 
a certain understanding of their team or their processes, but riding along, sitting next to a rep, you know, going through their day together, that's really where you understand what actually happens. Exactly. Yeah, that's so important. Um, so you described earlier that you have uh, at Haiku, you had sales and marketing operations uh, together. Were there other <clears throat> functions that RevOps uh, owned within within the business? Yeah, yeah. so uh, analytics was in there as well. So um, again, really key component, I think when you're looking at RevOps um, is that analytics and reporting function. Um, now, sometimes again, depending on the organization size, um, that may be separate, you know, sometimes it lives in the finance organization, um, you know, sometimes it's its own kind of beast under some type of BI team. But again, if we're talking, you know, startup world, it may not even be a function that just may be part of someone's job on a small ops team. It's like, okay, and you do all of our reporting. Uh, so Haiku's uh, about 300 people, Series C uh, last year, which was very exciting. Series um, B. Tell us. Oh, Series B. Oh, okay. Um, uh, how did you structure the team specifically? Uh, you know, the various headcount on the team? Yeah, so we had um, a, a director that was over the team, um, as well as then kind of the three core functions, each with a, a manager leading them. You know, one for, you know, the marketing ops piece, one specific for sales ops, you know, that ran deal desk and your typical you know, sales operations functions, and then analytics kind of as the the third piece there. And and how did you um, determine the, the right balance of in-house versus outsourced uh, help uh, to go achieve your strategies? So when I had first joined, you know, the, the team was relatively small. So, you know, we brought on contract and uh, agency resources initially. So, it, and I think that's a pretty valid strategy for a lot of organizations as you're trying to scale up. Um, start external. It gives you access to more resources, more diverse resources. And then as you hit critical mass, that's when you start to bring in in-house talent. So, um, you know, I think initially, I want to say it was probably like, three or four people. And then over time, you know, got up to, I want to say close to 15, you know, just in the function. So it's, it's about figuring out when and where is the right time to bring on an internal resource, um, you know, once you hit that scale. Yeah, that's so interesting. Uh, and that's quite a bit of growth that you went through. That's, that's very exciting. Yes. As a high-performing ops team, I think a lot of ops leaders tell us how they end up taking on a lot of initiatives that are maybe not traditionally in the ops function. They're kind of the folks who um, take the lead on anything the company needs where it doesn't fit cleanly into anywhere. I'm interested in whether there's some interesting corporate level cross-functional initiatives that you helped own or drive in the past that is kind of outside of the traditional purview of what you would consider RevOps. Yeah. So um, in my my NCR days, um, there was a, a period, um, you know, back where we decided to make a, a pretty drastic move into zero-based budgeting. <laughs> so again, really not, certainly not marketing ops uh, initiative at all, um, really more of a, a finance initiative than anything else. But um, because so much of it was involved with 
um, data management. There was a lot of cleanup that had to be done, you know, to make sure that we could track the different packages the way we wanted to and really report out on the suspend. Um, you know, I ended up managing uh, two of the largest packages across the company. Again, it was that exact scenario. Um, yeah, it doesn't really cleanly fit into ops, but was happy to volunteer. It was a big initiative. There was some crossover. So um, it ended up being a really positive experience. Wow, that that really is stretching the capabilities of, of ops. And I know um, also what's interesting is a lot of ops functions um, in companies, I've actually started seeing a lot more rolling back up to finance. So what you're describing, you know, as ops evolves and expands and becomes this amorphous, um, adaptable mass, I'm guessing people would probably see more of that if they had the finance um, aptitude that initiatives yeah. like what you just described might be rolled For up sure. there. And I think, um, I, I do I ironically think it's, it is in a lot of cases a pretty natural fit, um, especially when you have, um, uh, a forward-thinking CFO. So a lot of times, um, at least in past lives for me, I've had to sell, you know, my CFO on marketing being a revenue center as opposed to a cost center. But, you know, when you have a CFO who's already bought in, you, you kind of open up this whole new world of possibilities in terms of being able to model out your revenue all the way from the top of funnel and your leading indicators um, that you don't get when you're trying to kind of fight that battle of like, no, we're not just a cost here. Like we are able to generate revenue and, and here's how we're defining it and kind of aligning across those common definitions. And then it really helps the finance team um, drive forward when you're you're trying to set up your data architecture ultimately to report out in a certain way. You know, let's just kind of use the example, you know, let's say you have a, a mixed model hardware versus software business. Um, you know, if you don't necessarily have the data to report out on what revenue is coming from which area, it's something that has to be set up. And your, your CFO is going to be very, very much involved in that piece of the, the conversation. So having that alignment from the beginning is really great. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, I want to take advantage and I'm eager to dive deeper into that kind of multi-segment experience. You've had different size companies, uh, different types of uh, funding backgrounds. You've been at VC-backed startups. You've been in public companies. When you're interacting with um, even more senior level folks, you mentioned the CFO earlier, but um, further than that, it's the board and investors, right, that everyone is really accountable to. How has it been different and how have you interacted with board and investors at these different types of company stages? Yeah, so it, it is very, very different, you know, when you're talking VC-backed startup versus, you know, public company. Um, and, you know, I think that's important, especially from, you know, from the ops side to keep in mind on, on who it is you're talking to. Um, on the public company, you know, depending on what level you're at, you may not necessarily be interacting with directly with board members. You you may be though um, helping your exec perhaps uh, prepare for a board meeting. Um, in that, you know, public company space, uh, what they're looking for, you know, is that accurate reporting, you know, what happened in the quarter, 
making sure that any numbers you're presenting, you know, there's, you know, the appendix backed up of, you know, here's how we got these calculations. Here's how everything is defined. Um, it's a very different conversation than when you're in the the VC environment. You know, when you're in a startup, um, you know, the, the board members have a different interest in helping you. So they're, they're really there to make sure you succeed. Most likely, your company is part of their portfolio because they have experience with other companies like yours. So they want to help you solve challenges. They've been there before, likely at the stage that you're currently at and have seen the problems that you're currently having. So as you're talking to board members in the, the VC environment, um, you know, obviously if it's if it's a, a board meeting scenario, whether you're in the meeting or or just helping prepare, um, you know, you're still gonna want to present on what happened, you know, within the quarter um, and talk to, you know, what the goals are for next quarter, but you really have the opportunity to ask for their expertise. That's what they're there for. So if you're, you know, starting a new strategy, maybe you're moving into PLG or something along those lines, um, they've done it before. So kind of bring them the, you know, here's what we're looking to do. Here's our plans have you seen this work or do you have advice for us on how to implement this in a different way? When you say that they're there to help, you know, I, I suspect it means a few different things. It's probably their network, it's being able to share their experiences and also probably some tangible things. What are some of those resources you've been able to tap into through your investor or because of your investors? I mean, the, the, the experience I think is the most important for me. Um, again, just having that conversation and being able to talk through, you know, what they've seen already work, um, it, it's huge. Uh, and, you know, you can have that conversation, whether it's around technology, whether it's around people or or whether it's around process. Again, they've, they've been there. Um, you know, there's a reason they invested in your company. It's because they know your space. So have the conversation, ask the question you want to ask. Um, because you're not going to get better advice than, you know, from someone who's already done it. And as you advanced and continued in your RevOps career, especially knowing that the needs of different sized companies are uh, vastly, you know, apart, were there resources you relied upon um, yourself, you know, through or outside of the investor space that helped you continue to grow and hone your knowledge and like keep basically at the cutting edge of what's happening in the industry. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in continued education. Um, that doesn't always necessarily mean going back to school or, or getting the MBA, but, you know, following things like new podcasts, um, taking courses online. Um, I, I encourage all of my ops team members to do Six Sigma. Um, you know, I'm a, a Six Sigma black belt, you know, or in that way back in the day. And, and ever since, I think it's important for ops, uh, ops professionals to have that background, even if you're not in like the traditional manufacturing space, because most people, when they hear it, that's what they think of. Um, the applications there, I think, scale far beyond and really help create that, uh, that continuous improvement mentality that you need to really succeed and excel in the ops space. I love that. There's structured learning like those certifications. There's unstructured learning or more uh, everyday learning. Shout out and plug for the podcast and please subscribe <laughs> if you're listening. Um, great recommendations to just stay on top of that education. 
What I love too about having that common experience across the team. So whether or not it's manufacturing focused, you're introducing a set of language and a set of tools that the team can now speak uh, together and they know when you reference something a certain way, what you're referring to all that. So uh, I think that's, that's awesome. Um, I'd love to uh, talk to you about technology for a little bit. You've certainly seen a lot of it working across your various roles. Um, with your most recent experience, was there one tech, tech stack tool that you could just not live without? <laughs> Personally, um, a data analytics platform. Um, that's my number one. Um, I think you can get by <laughs> in a lot of ways, um, you know, with depending on where you are from a CRM perspective, marketing automation uh, perspective, there's a lot of different tools out there that can meet your needs depending on what stage you are. You know, you don't have to switch to the Marketo right away, you know, when you're, you're joining a team. You know, you can start with some of the smaller platforms. But the one that I always want and I always need is some type of data analytics platform, be it Tableau or Domo, um, somewhere where I can actually create the visualizations. All of my data sources are plugged in. I'm able to transform and connect different data sources together. Um, that's the most critical because when you've got team members who are spending hours, days, weeks just combing through Excel and trying to clean stuff up just to get you a basic report on, you know, activity level metrics, you're not able to actually get any insight out of that because all of your time and resources spent just cleaning up the data to give you a, a basic like, okay, here's our number for this week. <laughs> And sadly, companies just wait too long to make the investment in the proper BI tools. So there are people cobbling things together on Sundays in Excel or whatever whatever oh, means they have. Of course. And that's yeah. unanimous across whatever size company you're at. There's always someone who's still sitting in Excel trying to clean up a, a database manually and then you know give you a, a PowerPoint of some charts. And if you could invest in any one of those BI tools, uh, is there one that would stand out? You mentioned a few, but I'm just curious if you if you could have your pick. Tableau is my favorite. I think it's a really good starting place um, for any level of users. Uh, and it has a lot of good connectors right off the bat. Um, you know, I, I, I think I've seen a lot of organizations who are, you know, with the Microsoft Office suite already push Power BI, but I think the learning mm -hmm. curve there is uh, a bit steep, especially if you have a smaller team, whereas you can get started on Tableau um, extremely self-serve um, and, you know, really kind of teach yourself or, or learn through, you know, YouTube videos and, and the like for, for kind of building up that experience if you don't have it. Sure. And there's probably more talent in the marketplace as well, if you needed to tap, tap other talent for that. Um, Absolutely. And, and just out of curiosity, was there a tool within your environment that you would rely on for a health check? Just like, um, is everything running the way that you expect it to be running? Or were you able to produce that within Tableau? Uh, mostly, we're, we're able to produce most of that in Tableau. Um, again, all of our core dashboards were, were built on Tableau. You know, we're just looking at those on a daily basis, you know, different reports for, you know, what are our, what happened today versus the weekly versus the monthly kind of view in to see, um, you know, what was going on across the business. 
But the other component just for your health check, you have to have a testing <laughs> uh, methodology built in. So a lot of times, especially, you know, with MarTech, you know, we're not talking about we're doing everything off of one platform. You know, we may have data feeding from one to another. You've got an ad that's feeding into your, your automation platform, that's feeding to Salesforce. So that, that chain in the data has multiple points where it can break. Um, you know, if you're only looking at, let's say your, your end dashboard, you might miss that, you know, your point one broke somewhere. So having that kind of regular testing cadence built up in is really important. So, you know, you've got someone on your team, they're submitting test records, you watch the test record, make sure it got all the way through, you know, to, to your ed system and can diagnose you know, when uh, an issue may have occurred, especially when you're rolling out new changes. Um, it's it's really important to do that, you know, pre and post implementation. There's a whole bunch of yeah. things you just said, Sam, that are really resonating with me. And selfishly, I want to ask you and to dive into some specifics. Um, you mentioned, of course, how important the BI tool is. You mentioned the importance of being able to understand the status of different initiatives. There's so much that we use in the marketing tech stack, right? The the we we all are familiar with the graphics where there's literally thousands of tools on a single page, and the uh, logos are like one centimeter uh, apart. Um, when when you were overseeing and trying to get the insight level, not just hey, here's a number to tell you kind of where you are today or where you are this week when you're trying to evaluate the data and come up with recommendations and come up with how, what what is your opinion and perspective of how does this change certain uh, decisions you need to make around be that campaigns or your demand gen funnel or you know any any kind of campaign related um decision was there a way you were able to pull everything into a single place, a single view? Um, what were some of those platforms? Like, for example, it's across the ad platform. It might be across your marketing operations, probably your website, maybe your personalization tool, maybe have an intent platform. Like there's so much that we use just to function day to day. Um, was there an effective way where you're able to pull all of that into one place into your BI? Or did some component of the marketing ops functions basically still rely on weekly uh, Excel swimming about in data? Um, so I think the reality is um, there's no perfect platform. Um, I would love to say that, yes, I was able to always get everything I needed out of Tableau. Um, that was my closest to single source of truth as I've gotten. Um, but the reality is you need to take that data and then pair that with knowledge of what's going on in the business. Now, I think enriching that data as much as you can, um, you know, with your own kind of qualitative information, be that, you know, specific campaigns and messagings that were being run at the time or events that happened, um, that's always key. But to actually get the insights, it's it's a it's a bit of taking the, the data, looking at your peaks and valleys, and then aligning that to what happened, and then figuring out what drove that change. Um, to think of one example, 
you know, back uh, in my career with NCR, um, we had a, a, a digital banking campaign that we ran. And from the activity level metrics, it looked wildly successful. We had a ton of leads that came in, so much interest. The ads were driving a ton of clicks. Looked great. Um, but then all of the leads that came in were like almost immediately disqualified. So, you know, that raises some red flags. And when we went back and actually talked to the sellers and the, the, the SDRs that were receiving those leads, what we found out was um, there was a ton of interest, but the people that were clicking on the ads and driving the interest were actually end users, not banks. So it was people who were out in the market who were frustrated with their digital banking solutions at their bank and seeing the ad and clicking it as opposed to banks who were looking to to buy <laughs> new digital banking oh, solutions. Oh, what a challenge. So it's, oh, you know, huh. what we ended up having to do then is go back and kind of tweak the ad and the language to make sure, um, and the audience to make sure it was actually hitting the banks as opposed to the end users. So it's it's a bit of both. You have to do the, you know, the numbers side, but you have to really talk to the the organizations as well. I love that you bring it back to having qualitative input. I think uh, for someone who would have come through marketing ops and focused on the data and the reporting, it's so easy to completely rely on that and say, hey, I'm so data driven, I'm so data focused. And at the same time, just like what you said at the start of the call, sitting next to an end user, having actual conversations with humans, you know, how strange is that? is important to having that complete picture to inform your decisions. It is. And that's one area, you know, at the time we were, we were siloed marketing ops for sales ops, but that's one of those exact examples of why having the two functions together works well. Because again, if, if it was marketing side only looks great, we did our job. We, we drove the leads. Our KPI was the lead generation. Sales is looking for opportunities. You know, none of the leads converted to them. It was a massive failure. So having, you know, both sides of that story, that's how you actually fix the problem. So if we take a step back and we think about the future of RevOps for a moment, is there anything about the future of RevOps that's exciting to you or that, that excites you? Um, I, I think the uh, adoption of, uh, you know, on the whole and uh, the importance of operations and how we've continued to kind of see growth in that area, that's what really excites me. Um, I think more and more organizations will move away from the siloed approach and to that, you know, singular revenue ops function with more buy-in from finance. So I, I, I see that trend as a positive overall and the, the wealth of data that's available today. Um, you know, obviously there's there's a massive amount of platforms that we're using. You know, as you mentioned, the 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 stack of logos is just massive um, to the point where sometimes it can be overwhelming. But I see it as opportunity. Um, you know, we have more information available than ever before, um, and there's so much we can do with that to create new and exciting ways to engage with with customers. So. Um... Uh, Samantha, this conversation has been amazing. Um, we'd love to shift gears now and talk about um, uh, who you are a little bit, uh, your background. So you're based in the city, but I, I always call it the city. You're in New York City, correct? I'm actually in Boston. So I'm a lifelong New Yorker. We just recently moved up here about six months ago, but 
possibly oh. some some eyes on on moving back. Okay. All right. Well, that's exciting. Uh, so very cool. Now that I've said that Boston isn't the city. <laughs> uh, and uh, did you, uh, you study down University of Miami? Is that correct? I did. Uh, and what did you study? Actually marketing. I, I moved around a little bit. So started in marine biology, didn't have a stomach for it. <laughs> Went to architecture for a hot minute and then ended in marketing. So that's how we're here today. Yeah. Uh, so believe it or not, you're the second guest on this podcast that has been a RevOps leader that started in marine biology. So how cool is that? <laughs> it's a small world. It's a small um, world. Yes. Yes. Let, let's talk a little bit about how you got into um, SaaS RevOps. Yeah. So I, it kind of happened organically for me. Um, I actually started my professional career, believe it or not, in communications um, as your, you know, basic comms partner, um, editing press releases, like, um, and I was in, I was in New York City at the time, um, and I was, we, it was at our executive office. So I, I happened to be, you know, in the office to hear a lot of executive level conversations that were just happening in the hall. So I would have, wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to. Um, and our, our head of communications at the time um, was having a lot of trouble proving the value of the work that we were doing as a team. There was just constant challenges of, you know, I don't understand what what's going on. And I, I went to him at a time, kind of took a risk and said, I think that can help. Um, can I pilot an automation and analytics program? I said, okay, sure, go ahead. So um, completely in-house, started sending all of our internal communications through uh, an uh, email marketing platform that like we the company had developed and not, you know, not one that was, you know, one of the big names. Um, kind of coding them out myself basic HTML, taught myself how to do it, um, and started putting together a couple like really basic dashboards in Excel, looking at, you know, some of our media coverage, as well as what was happening from an internal, uh, internal comms perspective and employee engagement. Um, and almost immediately, the, the whole team was like, we need more of this. You know, for the first time, I'm able to go back to my executive uh, and, and say, here's what we drove this month, you know, for your program and, and your platform. Um, so it very quickly became my full-time job, um, you know, was taken off of all of the, the traditional comm stuff. And it was like, okay, this is all you do now. Um, hit critical maths of, I can't do this just by myself anymore. You know, went back, said, can I, you know, bring on a couple of people to work under me? And then it was like, yes, we need more of this. And then uh, from there, um, we had some org changes and, you know, ended up doing the same thing for marketing and the team just grew from there. So I kind of fell into it. Uh, that's amazing. And, you know, maybe this is a great time to ask, like in an ideal world, what's next on your career bucket list? Yeah. So, you know, I, I love operations. It really, you know, operations is, is like it comes natural to me. Um, you know, I, I like to describe myself to most people. I'm an analytic at heart, but an ops person by nature. Um, you know, my 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 dream is to to one day, you know, be a be a COO. So kind of continuing down that pathway and, and finding the right opportunity to really um, continue, you know, my my ops experience. That's that's my goal. 
I think we're seeing that more and more uh, heads of revenue operations are taking steps in that direction. So very excited for you uh, and you know, we wish you luck on that journey. Thank you. As you continue the journey of conquering the corporate world and uh, conquering the C-suite, what do you do to unwind from the insanity of your role? What are the things that makes you sing, so to speak, or literally or metaphorically um, outside yeah. of work? Yeah, outside of work, I, I have a four-year-old daughter, so spend a lot of family time with her. We love to cook together. Um, she's very sassy and opinionated already, which I can't imagine where she gets that from. <laughs> um, but yeah, just, you know, we, we do a lot of family time. Um, yeah, we dance, we sing and, and yeah, it's been great. Love it. Being able to, um, keep the work chaos in context when you've got real things to worry about, you know, at home with a four-year-old <laughs> that, that always keeps one grounded. Along the way, you've probably run into a lot of folks who've served as mentors, served as uh, role models, inspiration in ops. Are there people in the community that you really admire? Um, are there folks you want to shout out to? Who else do you think should be on the podcast? Uh, yeah, so I, one person comes to mind for sure. Um, uh, his name is Jim Lenskold. Uh, years ago, back in, in my NCR days, you know, we worked together um, in a contract capacity, um, you know, and, and having that, that time with him, you know, he really taught me a lot of different ways to look at ROI and how to model out ROI, especially, you know, from the upfront, from the, you know, the leading indicators on the marketing side, all the way through to revenue. So, um, I definitely think he's someone who could be, uh, very helpful, you know, on this podcast for sure. Um, and then in terms of other mentors, I've, I've been very fortunate um, in that I've gotten to work for um, a ton of really inspirational female leaders that helped me, you know, personally and professionally kind of, you know, dealing with, you know, how to, how to approach, you know, the, the workforce and, and be a woman in tech. So um, Maria Zivanovic-Smith, um, obviously one of them, um, you know, I've learned so much from her. Um, and then uh, Meredith as well, you know, from my days at Stratified, working with both of them really was was great. Fantastic. And uh, it's so amazing to be able to help lift each other up in the process and help bring other people along, right, as we progress in our careers. Absolutely. We'll make sure to include uh, their LinkedIn profiles in case other people are interested in following them. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. So uh, where can people find you? Are you on social media these days or uh, LinkedIn? Yes, I am on LinkedIn and I will be glad to share that link as well. Okay. But other than that, I'm pretty quiet on social media. Understood. Well, Sam, this has been an amazing uh, past hour together. We really appreciate you taking the time to share your RevOps experiences with our listeners. Uh, it's really just been a pleasure and we're so excited to, to hear what your next steps are uh, as you work, work into 2023. We really wish you all the luck and, and appreciate your, your time together with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation and um, for everyone listening, please subscribe. Um, great, great podcast uh, to listen to, especially if you're in the ops space. 
Thanks for the plug, Sam. You did my job for me. Um, let's, of course, we're very grateful for everyone listening. Um, appreciative of the increased excitement and enthusiasm we're getting all over social media whenever a new podcast episode drops. So if you learned something today, do what Samantha just mentioned. Uh, <laughs> tell someone about the podcast and please subscribe. Thank you again for being on the podcast, Sam. Thank you. And this has been another exciting, insightful episode of RevOps Rockstars. See you next time. Stay classy, Rockstars. And that wraps up another episode. Thank you so much for joining us. For show notes and other episodes, visit RevOpsRockstars.com. RevOps Rockstars is sponsored by OpFocus. Visit OpFocus.com to learn more about how OpFocus helps SaaS companies scale their revenue operations.